Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the break that we've had. Thank you for the things that we've enjoyed and for the reminder of the great event in which your son came to give himself for us. We rejoice in that past fact and we look forward to his return, which may be soon or may be far off. We pray that you would make us fruitful in the time that remains, however much that may be. Please help us today to dig into your word with enthusiasm. May your spirit be our teacher and may he maintain order and good fellowship between us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay. We are continuing on now in our study of bibliology, which is about the Bible itself. I think last time we were looking at the contents of the Bible, and we just did kind of an overview to see what's in the Bible, organizing it different ways. Now we're going to move on into a new section. I have not given you the notes on this yet, so don't be concerned if you can't find this in your notes. You will get this next week. We're going to begin looking at the origin and dissemination of the Bible. Where did the Bible come from? How did it get distributed? How did we end up with it? And among the topics we're going to look at are inspiration, inerrancy, canonization, the transmission of the Bible, and the ways in which the Bible can be translated. Tonight, our focus is going to be on inspiration. Okay? Can you hear me in the back? All right. If I, While if you're interrupting yourself, there's a flag. High London, Toyota, inside light on, the visitor's parking area. Ah. Anybody's in here? Okay. Thank you. If my voice drops during the hour, please raise your hand and tell me, okay? Because I do that sometimes. All right. As we talk about the topic of the inspiration of Scripture, there are two key passages that are very important. The first one is 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and instructing in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And the second one is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Now, what we're going to see in a little while is that there are different ways to translate that word there. So hang on. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but holy men... Let's see. I'm sorry. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to spend a little time later tonight looking in detail at these two verses. But before we do that, let me give you a working definition of inspiration, which I think is an accurate one. And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at a number of different ways in which people have understood inspiration. And by looking at those, we will be able to bring to the front certain ideas that are not really correct 
and then home in on the correct understanding of inspiration. But here's a definition of it to use right now. Inspiration is the process by which the Holy Spirit, working through the human authors of Scripture, and employing their individual personalities and personal styles of communication, produced the original autographs. By the way, what are the autographs of Scripture? Is that where Paul signed it at the end of the letter? Well, okay, the original manuscript. Remember the term manuscript? We used that a few weeks ago. A manuscript is a handwritten letter or a handwritten document. Every book in the Bible started out as a handwritten document written either by the author or by the author's secretary to whom he dictated it. Those are the autographs of Scripture. Strictly speaking, those original handwritten copies are the only ones that are perfect because those have been transmitted to us by repeated copying. Now, one of the questions, which we've already discussed some, is how reliable are the copies that we have today? And we're not going to jump on that tonight. But when we talk about the autographs, the original autographs, that's what we're talking about. Okay, so let's continue. Produce the inspiration involved in producing the original autographs, which are divinely authoritative and without error, and which are the very outbreathed word of God. Now, some of the keys, key ideas here that we need to note. Inspiration is a process. Okay? Somehow, God worked through those human authors to produce the autographs. There was a process involved. Inspired scripture is the result of that process. The autographs, not the authors, are inspired. Now, we'll camp out on this one a little bit as we move forward, okay? But there is no such thing as an inspired author of Scripture. Paul the Apostle was not inspired, at least not in the sense that we're using the word. You know, Paul probably wrote some personal letters or some laundry lists or something like that. Just because Paul wrote it doesn't mean that what he wrote is inspired. There was something special going on when Paul wrote the books of the Bible that we have today. Okay. In inspiration, I don't know why I put up. That doesn't belong there. In inspiration, the authors are agents of God, but they are not independent agents. They're under the control of God. And it is the product of inspiration that is inspired scripture, which is first and foremost God's word. Now you could say that the book of Romans is, God, is Paul's word, and that would be true. But at a higher level, it's God's word in the sense that God supervised the process so that what came out was God's word, which happened also to be Paul's word. Okay, so... Scripture is God's word delivered through men, not man's word later approved by God. I think that's a very important concept right there. 
Okay, any questions so far? I'm just throwing stuff at you right now. I haven't really supported this from Scripture, but we will as time goes on. All right. Let's talk about theories of inspiration. How have people understood inspiration in the past? Well, some theories of inspiration focus on the product, I'm sorry, on the process of inspiration, while others focus on the product. Going through these will help us to clarify our thinking on the nature and the products of inspiration. There are eight major theories. Okay, the first one is the natural inspiration theory, and we're going to go over each one of these tonight. Okay? The second one, it's hot in here, isn't it? <laughs> Excuse me. The second one is... Really hot. Really hot. The second one is the partial inspiration theory. The third one is the degree inspiration theory. The fourth one is the neo-orthodox inspiration theory. Remember we talked about neo-orthodox theology before? The fifth one is the mystical inspiration theory. Sixth is the conceptual inspiration theory. Seventh is the dictation or mechanical inspiration theory. And eighth is the verbal plenary inspiration theory. Now, as we get down to the end, we're getting closer to the truth. I wouldn't say that there's a real progression, but these last two are where we're really getting down to the to the, uh, to the meat of this issue. Let's look at each one of these briefly. Okay. According to natural inspiration, inspired scripture is a purely human work produced by exceptionally gifted religious thinkers, much like great works of art. I see Leah shaking her head, and I'm glad she is. What bothers you about that, Leah? Don't be afraid. It's just not true. It's not true. Okay. Well, let's think about this. If this is what we said inspired scripture was, how could we differentiate the Bible from the Koran or the Book of Mormon or the Bhagavad Gita or something like that? Could we? We couldn't. Okay? Because people would argue, well, those books were written by exceptionally gifted people who had very high religious thoughts. I think that would be the secular view. Oh, it probably is. Many people in the secular world view scripture this way. They say, yeah, the Bible is a great thing. It's got a lot of great ideas in it. This is kind of the way my father viewed the Bible in his most favorable moments toward it. You know, he said it was, it's great literature, but not much more. Okay. Some critiques of this. There's no divine component in this. You notice that? There's no mention of God in there at all. Secondly, it's not unique to the Bible. That's the point we just made. Third, it ignores Scripture's own testimony to its origin and nature and the involvement of the Holy Spirit. What did 2 Peter chapter 1 say? It says that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit as they wrote Scripture. Okay, but here we see nothing 
about those facts. So, I think we need to reject this one. Okay, second theory, partial or dynamic inspiration. Only the doctrinal truths and principles in Scripture are inspired. On the, on the other hand, truths that are accessible in human life to normal people just come from the human authors. So a person who hold this, holds this view would say, for example, what the Bible teaches about how you get saved, soteriology, or what it teaches about the angelic world, things that you can't see. Those things are free from error, but what the Bible teaches on science or the origins of the universe or how the animals came into existence or history or chronology or archaeology, those things are in error. Now, I don't think any of you would go with this view. Would you? Why do you think someone might like this view? What, what difficulty might some Christian thinker have been trying to deal with in coming up with this definition? Okay, evolution, um, scientific issues, issues of archaeology. There have been times in history, for example, uh, until the 1800s when archaeologists said there was no such place as Babylon. And people looked at the book of Daniel, and Daniel was all about people in Babylon, they said, this can't be true because we know there was no such place. Well, now we know there is such a place, and we have dug up the palaces that Daniel was in. But you can see that at times when the data from secular thought or from scientific thought seems to be in conflict with scripture, this kind of view of inspiration would sort of save the Bible and allow us to say, well, it's not right in everything that it says, but it's right in the things that count. Okay? Okay. Well, it does, doesn't it? Okay, did you hear what Gary said? Second Timothy says all Scripture is God-breathed. It doesn't say just the stuff about how you get saved or just the stuff about where the angels came from. Plus, so much of the doctrinal truth is illustrated through actual events. and <coughs> You see God at work through history, don't you? But if someone played devil's advocate, they could say, but we don't have the original autograph. Mm -hmm. So how do we know? Is well, that's a great question, and we're not going to answer it tonight. But <laughs> that's a fantastic question. We've talked about that a little, I think, but not much. But we will get to that later in the course, okay? You're asked who would subscribe this point of view. I would think that professionals in any of these academic fields, because of their own pride in professional expertise and knowledge, sure. would naturally fall in here. Sure. Naturally. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting. At this time in history, there are a lot of scientists, you know, if, if you saw expelled, all right, there are a lot of scientists who are beginning to admit that what they once thought that science taught that contradicted scripture is now starting to not look so like so much of a problem. Science is moving in the direction in many areas of what scripture teaches. Okay, critiques of this view. 
it drives a wedge between the human authors and the divine and the divine author. Okay? Here it's saying that, well, the ideas that the human authors could have thought up themselves came from them, but the ideas that could only come from God came from God. You seem to have a non-cooperative work there. Secondly, here's a big one. There's, no, there's really no objective criterion or criteria upon which to distinguish between what is spiritual and what is only accessible to man. So, the attempt here to save scripture from claimed errors results really in a complete loss of credibility. In other words, the cure is worse than the disease, isn't it? And that's true of many of these views. Okay, let's go to degree inspiration. This is a little different than the previous one. According to this theory, different parts of scripture are inspired in different degrees. And the people who hold this theory come up with all kinds of ideas. They call some things suggestion, direction, elevation, superintendence, guidance, and direct revelation. And the idea would be that the human writers at some point were be get, being given direct revelation. God was telling them something. And at other points, God was just giving them a suggestion or he's trying to point them in the right direction, something like that. This is a rather vague concept. Now, according to this view, there are errors present in Scripture, but Scripture is still authoritative for faith and practice. Has anybody seen this last expression? Scripture is authoritative for faith and practice? You often see that phrase in the doctrinal statements of fairly conservative Orthodox Christian organizations. Okay? And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but when you see this statement, Scripture is authoritative for faith and practice, it's probably saying, or implying, it's authoritative for faith and practice, but not authoritative for history and science, or something like that. Okay? So watch out when you see that phrase. You know, don't condemn somebody who uses that, but if you see that phrase, you need to perk your ears up a little bit and look a little further and see what's going on. You see what I'm getting at here? Okay. Critiques of this view. Same criticisms as for the last one we looked at. And then what does partial inspiration really mean? How can something be partly God's word? Does God speak half-truths? Are there degrees of truth would it make any sense to say, well, in this statement, the true part comes from God, but the false part comes from man? You can't take a statement apart like that, can you? Statements are complete thoughts, and you can't really, you know, you can't really divide them this way. I think this is just very vague thinking, and I think it just doesn't work. All right. Next one the neo-orthodox view. Do you remember what neo-orthodoxy was? Anybody? We talked about this oh, four or five weeks ago. Neo-orthodoxy was an attempt to recover the spiritual aspect of Christianity from 
the disaster that resulted when theologians allowed science to tell them that the Bible couldn't be true in its record of history or the miracles of Jesus or the redemption from Egypt or any of the things that science said could never have happened. So the neo-Orthodox theologians came along and they said, well, the Bible isn't really true, but it's a witness to the experience of people in the past in their personal encounters with God. And then they went further and they said that if you have a personal encounter with God, if you make this leap of faith in the dark, whatever that is, then you open up the scripture and all of a sudden the words jump off the page and they become the word of God for you in that moment. Okay? That's that's neo-orthodox theology. Neo-orthodox just means new orthodoxy. It's really not very orthodox, is it? And it's funny. The, the neo-orthodox people, how do I put this? They're sort of standing on the shoulders of orthodox Christianity in that they're convinced that there is a Jesus who is a savior, but you can't find about him from the Bible. You can only find about him by having a personal encounter with him. After you have that personal encounter, when you read about the Bible, you say, oh yeah, that's him. But the question is, how in the first place did you ever know that there was somebody out there to try to make a leap in the dark too? You know? That just doesn't work. In reality, they're sort of trying to do a bootstrap operation. Okay. Critiques of this view. This really isn't a theory of inspiration, is it? It's a denial of inspiration. They say the Bible isn't the Word of God. It only becomes the Word of God after you have this personal encounter with God. Well, how can it become the Word of God if it wasn't the Word of God before? And after it becomes the Word of God for me, how can it not be the Word of God for you? It's just, this is just gobbledygook, isn't it? Okay. This theory views revelation as an experience. What, what's the essence of a revelation? When someone communicates something to you that you didn't know before, is the essence of that event an experience? Or is the essence of that event a message? It's really a message, isn't it? Now, there's an experience involved in receiving the message. You know, the message might appear towed behind the banner of an airplane, or you might see it in the mold on a piece of bread, you know, if we want to get really goofy, or it might come over a, a stock ticker tape machine, or it might be a text on your cell phone. But no matter which way that message got to you, what counts? What it says, right? Well, also, Okay. Well, that's true. I mean, if, if a message comes to you in some flaky way, you may say, I'm not sure I really believe it. And, and, of course, one of the problems here is authority, right? Do you accept the message as being something that comes from God? Well, we have reason to believe that this comes from God for a lot of reasons, because of its unity, its consistency, its historical accuracy, um, the evidence 
of its life-changing power. There are a lot of reasons why we believe that this is the Word of God. But getting back to this, these guys have really confused revelation and experience. Revelation is not an experience. It's really a message. Okay, and last, I think the neo-Orthodox view is based on a faulty understanding of the nature of revelation and the nature of a relationship with God. What has to come first in order for you to build a relationship with God? The message, okay? What chapter in the Bible says that? Romans 10, okay? Good. Let's look at that. Romans 10, starting with verse 14. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And I would add another line. What do they have to preach if they don't have the word of God? Okay. In order to build a, revel- a relationship with God, you have to have an invitation from God. You have to have a message from God. And that message is found in Scripture. These guys say you have the relationship first and you get the message afterwards. And that's just nonsense as far as I can see. Any any further comments on this one? Does that get into election? Uh, not really. We'll get into election later. Important topic. I don't want to get sidetracked now. But it's a good question, Clay. Okay, next theory. Mystical inspiration. This is a lot like the very first one, natural inspiration, except it has an added component. In this theory, the human authors were highly gifted religious thinkers with a greater degree of religious insight than other people. That was the natural theory, but these guys say no than other Christians because they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now this is at least starting to sound a little biblical, isn't it? Stare at that for a minute, though, and ask yourself what problems there might be with this view. It's sort of like the Gnostics. Okay. I don't know if it's true, but I just said that it sort of looks that way. Yeah, it's, it's sort of... Elitism. It's it's elitist. It's a little mysterious. Um, it what? Okay, it's giving credit to the people in a way, Bruce. Aren't all Christians? Okay, okay. Catch that. Aren't all Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit? We are. Now, if it's true that all Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then there is no such thing as a category of Christians who have greater insights simply because they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There might be some other cause why they have greater insight, but it's not the indwelling. Okay? Any other problems? Well, it gets back to the problem with the grocery list that Paul wrote, too. In other words, his grocery list was somehow had greater religious insight than my grocery mm-hmm, list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, what would make the books of Scripture 
different than other things written by these supposedly special people. Well, let me ask you this. Joseph Smith writes the Book of Mormon. And he says, I wrote this because I had special spiritual insight. What do you do now? And the problem with this is that this seems to leave open the possibility for any spirit-indwelt Christian to write new scripture, doesn't it? Can you see that? Try it. No, 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 no. The, the great thing about these classes is that you can say silly things and we won't jump on you too hard. What about Old Testament things? Okay. Okay. No, that's a, that's a great question. Okay, let's talk about that. Did everybody hear the question? What about Old Testament saints? Were they indwelt by the Holy Spirit? The evidence of the New Testament seems to suggest that Old Testament saints were not indwelt by the Spirit in the, in the way that we are. There's a passage that says the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I think that's in the Gospel of John, right? Now, the evidence in the Old Testament is that many Old Testament believers had the Spirit come upon them, okay? Such as Samson or King David or King Saul, many of the prophets. And the coming upon of the Holy Spirit seemed to enable those people to do things that were beyond their natural capabilities. Okay? Now, this view does sound a lot like that, except that it's talking about indwelling, not coming upon. Um, and, and there is a difference. One of the differences between indwelling and the coming upon of the Holy Spirit is that the coming upon is reversible. Okay? God took his Holy Spirit away from Saul. Now, that didn't mean that Saul lost his salvation. But it did mean that God removed the enabling power that had made it possible for him to be an effective king. Okay? Indwelling is not removable, is it? Ephesians chapter 1 says that the indwelling Holy Spirit is the seal that shows that we belong to God. And I think it's in um, Romans 8. It says, if anyone does not have the Spirit, he is not a Christian. Okay? So, those they are two very different things. Now, your question is good because it helps to point out that whatever was going on with the writers of Scripture, the human writers of Scripture, it probably wasn't directly related to indwelling, but it may be very similar to the coming on of the Spirit in the sense that the Spirit enabled them to do something special that they couldn't do themselves. You know, most of us here could not write an inerrant book unless it said 1 plus 1 is 2, 2 plus 2 is 4, etc., etc. We could probably write an inerrant book like that, but it wouldn't be very profound. You know, Paul, Paul, Paul was probably a genius, but what he wrote didn't come from his genius. It came from the mind of God. Okay, But your, your question is very good because it allows us to point out the distinction between indwelling and a special ministry that was not continuous. You know, like Bruce said, not everything that Paul wrote was inspired. Whatever the pros process of inspiration involved, 
it seemed to be effective only for the period of time in which the human writers were writing the books that are in our Bible. Okay? All right, let's go farther. Let's critique this a little more. Okay, like natural inspiration, that first one, this sees scripture largely as a human and natural product, although you could say, well, they've got the ministry of the Holy Spirit, so it's a little different. Big problem, we mentioned this already, allows, allows for the possibility of additional future additions to scripture, and it also seems to allow for human error. And finally, I would argue that high degrees of spiritual insight in men cannot produce the word of God because man's word is not God's word. You know, it's the old thing, no matter how high you can jump, you can't jump to the moon. Somebody might get closer than you, but you just can't do it. Okay. Now we're going to come to one that's going to be tempting. Conceptual inspiration. God gave inspired concepts to humans who then expressed them in their own sometimes faulty words. As a result, scripture, scripture may contain errant words, but not errant concepts. Now, suppose I just took the definition up to here. God gave inspired concepts to humans who expressed them in their own words, and you didn't have the rest. That would be a little, a little attractive, wouldn't it? it seems to be getting closer to what we see in Scripture. Because isn't it true, for example, that Paul's vocabulary is different than John's? You know, or the style of, you know, the first five books of the Bible is different than the style of Isaiah? You know, or you look at the Psalms of David and they're different than the Psalms of Asaph. So this one, this one has some attraction to it. Of course, when we get down to the next sentence, Scripture may contain errant words, but not errant concepts. Now we're not comfortable, right? Yes, in all these cases, we're talking about the autographs. Okay? Don't worry about the problems of transmission for now. Okay. What problems do we have with this? Well, if the human expression of divine and true concepts is errant, then we don't have access to the inspired concepts, do we? If the human authors understood it but miscommunicated it, where did the Word of God end up? It's lost in the ozone somewhere, right? It was gone as soon as those guys died, having written down the wrong thing. I believe that one of the motivations for this theory is the desire to avoid what's called a dictation model of inspiration. We're going to get to that one next, but the dictation model of inspiration says that God told the human writers exactly what to write, and they were like secretaries with a typewriter. And that's all they did. Okay? A lot of folks are uncomfortable with that, and there are reasons why they are. And this seems to be an attempt to avoid the problems of that view. Another problem. This really denies that Scripture is the Word of God. 
It really says that scripture is man attempting to express the thoughts of God. And the key word there is what? <coughs> attempting. Okay? Which implies that it wasn't always successful. Okay? And finally, I think this is inconsistent with Isaiah 55, 10 to 11. Somebody, some guy with a big voice, read that out nice and loud. Isaiah 55, verses 10 to 11. We got a volunteer? Okay, go ahead, Bob. 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Okay. Catch those last few lines. God says that his word is what? It's effective. It's successful in accomplishing his purposes. Now, if one of God's purposes is to do what? What, 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 is, what is all writing? What is the purpose of any writing? Or to communicate, okay? If one of the purposes is to, is to communicate, then this theory can't be right, can it? It says, Scripture says it works. It does the job. So, I think we need to reject this theory as well. All right, let's go on to the next one. Dictation or mechanical inspiration. This theory says that God dictated scripture to the human authors who wrote down his exact words. Therefore, scripture is God's inspired, inerrant word. What do you think, Clayton? Uh, I was just wondering if that's what kind of happened in the prophets. Okay. Excellent observation. Did you hear that? Clayton says, is this what happened in the prophets? Why do you think that's what happened in the prophets? Well, because they usually say, well, the Lord came to me and said. Good. There's that phrase, thus said the Lord. Okay? Andrew? Well, when comparing this and the previous one, you have to ask the question, when you have a God who is inerrant and all-powerful, why he would let his word be given to faulty humans who would mess it up and hurt its transmission. Okay. He could have just dictated to them. Okay. Absolutely no purpose Did everybody hear that? The question is, why would God put his word into the hands of humans who could make mistakes and allow that to happen? The dictation theory says God didn't do that at all, and therefore everything that we have is inspired and inerrant. Now, what are we seeing? We're seeing there's a lot, there's a lot to like in this theory, isn't there? What's not to like? There are parts of scripture that different parts of scripture have different voices. Okay. Or different styles. Okay, good. But whereas the prophecies generally have the same voice. Okay, okay. Now catch what Bob is saying. Bob is saying that there are some parts of scripture that clearly seem to be 
dictated by God, and there are other parts where you see variations in style, or you see um, Paul saying, you know, greet my Antillian, Toledo. Well, that's loose translation, but, you know, <laughs> there are things in there that don't seem to be appropriate to say that they were dictated. There are issues of personal style, personal greetings. Um, you got Paul, you know, saying, I went to Galatia and I got in a fight with Peter. You know, that doesn't sound like God dictating, does it? Okay? Well, just, just the very fact of you've got Paul and you've got John. Yeah, <laughs> and they're so different, right? But, but I mean, Paul has sentences. So different, but in, in the way they approach things, Mm-hmm. But they're saying so much of the same thing. Okay. Now, let's think about that. We've got two people with different styles, different vocabularies, different ways of looking at things, but they're still expressing the same ideas. So we have evidence there, on the one hand, of the superintending hand of God, right? And on the other hand, of the differing personalities and influences of human writers. That would suggest that although this theory may be right about parts of Scripture, and in fact I think it is, it's not right about all of Scripture. Okay? So, let's see if we've hit all the critiques already. Hmm, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? This can account for some of Scripture, but probably not all. All right, it doesn't account for variations of style, personal greetings, histories, etc. But the strength of this view is that it gives full recognition of the inspired, inerrant nature of Scripture and describes some portions of Scripture. In fact, there are some portions of Scripture where the human author who wrote them down says, I wrote this down and I have no idea what it means. You know that? Daniel says that a couple of times. In his, uh, in, in his prophecy, um, where is it? Is it in 1 Peter chapter 1? That there's a statement that the guys who wrote down Scripture were looking forward in time trying to figure out what they were talking about. You remember that passage? Let's see if we can find it. I think it's 1 Peter chapter 1. If I'm wrong, somebody correct me, but I think that's where it is. 10, 11. Okay. Could you read those for us, Don? Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories of the Father. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves to you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you to those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels come to look at these Okay, excellent. Now, did you notice what that passage says? The conceptual theory of inspiration cannot be reconciled with it, can it? Because it says that there are some things that Scripture expresses that the people who wrote them down, the human authors, did not understand. So God didn't always put a concept in somebody's mind and say, write it down. Sometimes people wrote things down and didn't have the concepts themselves. So the dictation theory is true of some of Scripture, I think, but I don't think it's true of all. 
Okay. That was a pretty clear dictation. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) That's a good one. I like it. All right. There's one theory left, and this has to be the right one. May I have the envelope, please? All right. The verbal plenary theory of inspiration says that God worked through human authors to convey his exact words without error while allowing those authors freedom of expression according to their own circumstances and styles. We use the word verbal to indicate that God chose the very words that appear in the autographs. Now, he chose them, but in some way he worked through the authors so that they were also the words of those authors. The word plenary means that all of Scripture is inspired. It's not just part. Yes. An example I was thinking about was those guys who uh, were the craftsmen who did the work on the tabernacle. Oh, Holyab and Bezaliel. Yeah, Bezaliel, however you say it. Really, it was the same kind of process mm-hmm. where the Holy Spirit empowered them to do Absolutely. This so clearly they had mm-hmm. some measure of craftsmanship prior to the Holy Spirit empowering yes. them. But yet, <coughs> the Holy Spirit empowered them to do something that they... They could never have done it without the Holy Spirit. But yet it was a joint, a joint project. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, you know, you can draw parallels between the work of the human nature of Christ and the divine nature of Christ. Um, somehow, God was doing something here where He used the human beings, and He didn't. You know, it's not like He injected them with an anesthetic and then talked through their mouths mechanically or something like that. Somehow he worked with them in such a way that they were conscious and they were active and they were participating and they were even expressing their own thoughts in most cases and even emotions, but in such a way that what came out was exactly what God wanted to come out. And that's that's one of the reasons why this book is so deep and so unique and so amazing. It's really not like anything else that has been produced in history as as far as we know. Sure. Yes. Yeah, and and if you look at the Old Testament, if you're an expert in Hebrew, which I'm not, you can even see Hebrew developing in time and changing through the centuries. And yet God uses the changes in language and people living at different times in history and different cultures and different geographies. And it all comes out still to be the unified word of God. Yes. Dream is one way that God has used to reveal things. Um, God has used dreams. He's used visions. He's used talking donkeys. Um, yeah, angels. Good. Um, there are a lot of ways in which God has has revealed himself himself to prophets. Um, the interesting thing about inspiration as it is explained in the scripture, 
is that we're really not told much about the process. We're really only told about the product. It remains largely mysterious. Now, if we go back to those two passages, we can see a little bit about it. But when this class is over and when you continue to think about inspiration, don't expect to say, I know how God did that. Okay? We really don't know how he did it. We only know that he did it. Well, and we have to be content with that to some extent. One reason we don't know how he did it is because he did it in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, it was complex, wasn't it? And, and you know, God, God does things that are <coughs> complex and really beyond our comprehension, but that doesn't mean that they don't make sense. John? Uh, I don't understand your question. Well, talking about having the prophet to direct word by word kind of okay. situation. Okay, sure. Uh, other places, it was more personality involved. Why couldn't it also be conceptual situation? Well, okay. You could, you could say, for example, that when Paul was in Arabia after after Christ appeared to him on the Damascus road and he got he got converted but there was about 14 years where he didn't write scripture and he was pretty much off thinking to himself I think what what he was doing is he was going through the old testament and studying the books that he had already studied and trying to see how Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah fit in with what was there. Now in that process, I think God was infusing into his mind the concepts that would later come out in his writings. Now in that sense, you could say that God transferring concepts to a writer's mind is part of the process that he used in inspiring parts of scripture. I wouldn't want to use the conceptual inspiration definition that we saw before because that suggests that there's error. But you're right. I think very often God would teach people things and then they would express them again, but when they expressed them in written scripture, it was under his supervision so that it came out the way God wanted it to come out. You know, there's that promise in the upper room discourse in John where Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will bring to your memory all the things that I have taught to you. I think that's a key aspect of how God worked in the inspiring of the of the New Testament documents, particularly the ones that were written by Jesus' disciples. Okay? All right. Um, I've got a little bit more, but I think I'm going to save it for next week. So let's take our break, and let's try to resume about... 7.48, 10 minutes from now. Okay?